You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Julian Bagini, who is director of the Royal Institute of Philosophy. He's also the founder of Philosopher's Magazine and the author of many, many books, The Great Guide, What David Hume Can Teach Us About Being Human and Living Well. Also, The Edge of Reason, A Rational Skeptic in an Irrational World. And then you've got a bunch of others. I got to dig back into the uh, archives. The Pig That Wants to Be Eaten, which apparently became a bestseller, which is probably is a story that we have to get into. Also, How the World Thinks, which is a wonderful history of philosophy, the philosopher's toolkit, a bunch of other books. Welcome, Julian. Thanks for having me, Greg. In many ways, you followed in the footsteps of David Hume, who famously was unable to procure an academic appointment. I, I don't think he tried that hard, but he remained independent throughout his entire life. And I think he remained in many ways a, a generalist. And back in those days, of course, being a generalist was the norm. But in today's world, if you are a philosopher, if you're an academic of any kind, becoming a specialist is, is absolutely uh, necessary. So I'm wondering, has your career path made it possible for you to continue to be a generalist? And is, is philosophy in, in its truest sense, the ultimate generalist profession? Good questions. I do think I am a generalist because part of what I think I want to do, and part of the reason I think that I didn't end up in academia was that I'm very interested in making connections between things and trying to sort of see that bigger picture, if you like. And I think that the academic environment we have, the academic world we have is very, very good at incentivizing people to do work on small bits of the jigsaw. And that's often valuable work. So I'm not trying to criticize it, but it, it directs almost all resources at that. And as a result, it doesn't really incentivize anyone to sort of put the pieces together, which is a different kind of skill, right? I don't think it's any or less demanding. I don't think it requires any more or less intelligence, but it's just simply not rewarded. So within academia, that would have been very, very hard for me to do. Outside, I've, I've managed to do that. I've been able to do that. And mainly because virtually everything I've been doing has been essentially about trying to address a more general reader than the academic philosopher. And for that reader, you, you've got to make the connections because they're not interested in the intricacies of the d differences between Donald Davidson and Willard von Ullmann Quine, whatever it might be. They want to see how it fits together. And also even, even particular issues like something like free will, for example, free will is a question which people want to understand what all the intellectualizing about that means for them and how they ought to live. But even a question like that. Some of the academic debates have become very focused on very sort of narrow aspects of that. They're only concerned with certain ideas around free will, not necessarily interested in seeing how it fits in with broader conceptions of freedom and, and how that fits in with how we want to live our lives. So yeah, I think it'd be very hard to have been so general within inside academia. What you find with academics is they're only allowed to do that broad stuff kind of towards the end of their careers when they've earned their grades earn their stripes doing the, in the trenches, doing the detailed stuff. Well, it seems like we've kind of gone in the opposite direction of religion. Remember, religion used to be 
something that was reserved for the priests. And they fought tooth and nail when they tried to make it accessible to the masses through translating the Bible into the vernacular. And I think at one point, philosophy used to be accessible to the, the general educated public. And now if you say you're a philosopher, it usually means you're doing something that is highly arcane and very difficult to access. But philosophy is something that we all do, whether we know it or not, to some degree. I mean, isn't everyone sort of a philosopher? It's just that most of us are bad ones. <laughs> no, I th no, I think you're right. I think the, the, the kind of questions that philosophers are interested in are the ones which, you know, most reflective people are interested in. Not everyone. You know, I think that Philosophers sometimes talk as though everyone is more of a philosopher than they are. There are people who really don't like examining life or introspection, anything like that at all. They just want to get on with it. And sometimes those people live very, very good and, and rich lives. So there's more than one way to go. But I think a lot of people, maybe the majority, at least at some point, you know, ask themselves those big questions. And even if you're not asking big questions, uh, most of the big philosophical questions have relevance for everyday life. So, I mean, simple question about knowledge and truth. We've really seen in recent years how, you know, what is knowledge, what is truth? These are issues which are being played out very, very, um, sometimes sort of violently and divisively around things like vaccines and elections and, you know, persecutions of people. So these are issues which everyone is interested in. I think I would say in defense of the idea that philosophers have retreated to their seminar rooms, I think that happened quite a bit in the, in the 20th century, but I think in recent decades, and it's still in this direction, I think more philosophers are really seeing the value of engaging with a broader public. And a lot of them are getting better at it and are very good at it. I mean, I, sometimes I wear this hat of the academic director of the Royal Institute of Philosophy, and we have a lecture series and we have annual lectures. The brief is always that, you know, this is meant to be proper good philosophy and we get top people in to do the talks, but we always tell them, address a general audience, don't assume any prior knowledge. And, and what sort of struck me is how good most of them are at doing that. Very rarely, in fact, I've never had someone completely mess it up. At worst, they may sort of judge the pitch slightly incorrectly, but they're generally very, very good at it. And then they want to do it and they appreciate it and they see the value of it. And that wasn't even true when we started the Philosopher's Magazine. This was 1997. I think it, that wasn't as a mainstream a thing. And there were still people looking down on the idea of philosophy for the general public. And there may be differences in cultures as well between America and the US. I remember, very interestingly, we used to go to academic conferences with our, our magazine. And we went over to the States and people would come across to our stall in the exhibitor's booth and say, hey, great, what are you doing? This is fantastic. You know, I didn't buy one or something. We went to British conferences of like, like this from about, you know, 30 yards away and sort of smuggle. I think that's changed, thankfully. In the book, Edge of Reason, you, you say that the world is dismissive in part to the power of reason right now, that common sense is becoming scarcer, I guess, in many ways, that, that reason is seen as the enemy of, of mystery, the enemy of ambiguity at best, and then maybe at worst, it's, it's just a tool for oppression in, in some way. And Hume was fighting enthusiasm and superstition back in his day. And, and I think to some extent you're, you're doing something similar, but do we really think that if there is a trend, that this trend is, is moving in kind of the opposite direction of the way it was moving in Hume's day? 
we can all have a subjective feeling that that's the case when we look around, but do we really have any reason to worry? Is, is there evidence, any kind of empirical evidence? If this was a, a scientific claim that reason is on the retreat, is there any evidence to support that claim? I'm not sure. I'm really not sure about that. And I'd be interested if you could throw a quote at me from the book in which I make that claim boldly. I, I would be disappointed because I certainly report that that's, that's the way it feels to a lot of people. And I often do find myself a little bit sort of, I certainly jar when people assert that as an absolute claim. I think it's more complicated than that, as these things normally are. We noticed the ways in which people seem to be becoming more irrational, but we often kind of don't really notice the ways in which they're perhaps becoming more rational. And also perhaps we attribute the reasons for these changes in the wrong places. So I, for example, I wrote a very short book called A Short History of Truth. And one of the things I tried to talk about there was that in pretty much every domain where people are kind of complaining about you know, a lack of reason and so forth, you can see that behind it is something which might be seen as good. And I, I think the most striking examples of this are actually if you talk to, or if you, if you see interviews with people who, who support like QAnon theory, for example, or the other 9-11 conspiracies or anti-vaxxers, a lot of them are claiming to uphold precisely those values which the Enlightenment promoted, right? They say, think for yourself, check the facts for yourself, don't trust authority, don't believe what the powers are telling you. So it's really quite curious, you know, that the general principles they're following are exactly the ones we would want them to follow. The problem is that they seem to lack the skills to do that properly. So, you know, people say a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. A little critical thinking is a dangerous thing if you don't do it very well. I'm not sure that it'd be right to say in the simple terms, oh, yeah, reason is on, on the retreat. It is important to try and spot the ways in which it is in retreat, the reasons people have for attacking it. I think that and there were quite a few of those. And one, I think, is, for example, the idea simply that we can't really trust reason. So I think people have absorbed a Scientific American Digest version of psychology in which it tells them that really, you know, whenever we think we're doing something rationally, we're not. We're just acting impulsively, emotionally, and reason is just the veneer we put on top of things which actually is obviously, uh, in, in some sense, something like that is going on a lot of the time. But I think people often assume that science has shown that this is really all the reason is. And that leads them to become very suspicious of the, the very possibility of being rational. Of course, that argument completely defeats itself. Because if it were true that science had discovered that these mechanisms were at work, that would be proof that we have the capacity to, by the use of reason, to discover mechanisms behind the way we think, which would show that simply we're doing more with reason than simply rationalizing prejudices and so forth. So there are other things as well, but I think, I think the key point I just want to stress here is that there are certain aspects in which reason may be in retreat, and it's important to identify those, but it's also important to sort of recognize that in a way, the historical development of reason sort of creates both backlashes and also unforeseen and unwanted effects Again, if, perhaps to give another example, I don't want to go on too long. If you take the sort of the, the postmodern turn, if you like. Now, postmodernism is a term which is used very, very loosely, and I don't want to, perhaps we can avoid that altogether. But let's just say within many academic disciplines, there was a, an attack on the idea of a one hegemonic single truth, which we all had to bow down before, 
an idea of there being more narratives and also the idea that what was presented as truth was often actually simply the most powerful people's narrative for how things should work. All these things went on and people articulated those views, not actually because they simply thought anything goes. They never thought that. They thought this was useful for disrupting power. They thought it was a progressive thing. And of course, what happens over time is that when that idea gets out there and percolates, it becomes simply a kind of a, a global skepticism. And it actually gets used most effectively, not by progressive forces of you know, small C conservative and reactionary forces to kind of um, you know, dismiss any kind of challenge to their authority. Yeah, I find it interesting that the people who are in those kind of science denier circles, they use the language of science. It's just that they're never good at it. So, for instance, they'll insist on a level of proof that is just unattainable. They need absolute positive proof for the positions that they disagree with, but they're very comfortable <laughs> with weak degrees of proof <laughs> for the things that they, they seem, to, seem to believe. But isn't this just, you know, what you talk about in the book? the role of, of judgment, that we will never, ever be able to completely move away from judgment. And one of the reasons why reason is critiqued is because people expect too much from it and they have a notion of reason that is unrealistic. And that's why they kind of lose faith in it. Yes, I think that's true. And in a, in a way, I think that my kind of, that, that general approach seems to apply to lots of things that I end up thinking about that people have an unrealistic expectation of a certain phenomenon, be that reason, be it the nature of the self, be that free will. They then quite easily show the thing in question doesn't meet their standards and therefore they're led to a, a skepticism about it. And in all, all cases, I think in so many cases, morality is another one actually. People think that without an absolute objective standard of morality, everything is just a matter of opinion. In all these cases, what you need is a weaker, in a sense, understanding of what those things mean, but a more realistic one, which can stand on its, on its own two feet. In the case of reason, I think part of the problem here, again, has been that I think some of the advocates of reason have been too shy of emphasising its limitations. They've been sort of talking about how wonderful reason is, and they talk about how great the scientific method is. And as with so many of these things, what you end up doing is creating these nice dichotomies Manichaean is a good and bad. So, you know, reason stands against superstition and science stands against myth, whatever it might be. Everything's made very, very neat, very, very black and white. And when people discover it's not quite like that, and when they discover that actually reason, science doesn't give you absolute certainty. There are some things that are so well established it's as good as, but even then it's not absolute. And in, in most cases, you know, reason doesn't live absolute certainty. We believe what is most reasonable, not what reason demands most of the time. And, you know, and that, that subtlety is difficult to deal with. And as you said, I think one of the things that I've kind of been interested in in a very long time is the fact that I don't think you can eliminate that, that element of judgment, which is a word I think a lot of philosophers run scared of because it suggests something subjective, something sort of unmeasurable, something not completely objective. But I, th I think we have to be open about that. Why is it that philosophers still disagree about pretty much everything? If it were the case that you are simply following the argument wherever it leads, it would lead all rational people to the same place. So you've only got 
two explanations really. One is that just some people are more intelligent than others. Some philosophers simply are better philosophers than others. They've got the right answer and the people who disagree with them have got the wrong answer. Or that people of equal intelligence and knowledge and skills and all these kind of things can at certain points make different judgments about which way to jump on something. That's, I think, the uncomfortable but honest uh, answer. And it doesn't mean anything goes, right? Because <laughs> the, the, it's not like there are an infinite number of, of sensible theories about the way things work. There aren't, but there's more than one. And again, that's perhaps a recurring theme as well. I, I guess I'm often a pluralist. I'm a pluralist about ethics and the good life and all sorts of things. And pluralism is not the idea that anything goes. It's the idea that often more than one thing goes. Let's put it that way. Or at least, and that, and that can come in stronger or weaker forms. It might be that that's ultimately the case, that more than one thing always goes, no matter how much you knew, or it could just reflect a human limitation. It may be that, who knows, maybe if we're infinitely wise, we would, there'd only be one, one truth, one way of seeing things, one ethics. Maybe that's the case, but that's never going to happen for human beings. So given our finite capacities and our finite natures, we're going to end up with, with pluralism. In most cases, in science, you often do converge on one theory, thankfully. But science is the exception. I think one of the problems has been that because science is so successful, people have held up science as kind of the model for all other intellectual disciplines to follow. But they can't because in, in things like philosophy or ethics, politics, anthropology, sociology, we don't have that kind of you know, we, we, the, the data simply isn't as determining as it is in science. There is sort of a disposition that philosophers have, which is that they believe something. They either want everyone else to believe it, or they want to be convinced that they're wrong. And you know, this seems to infiltrate every aspect of life. If you're a philosopher and, and you think you should buy the large trash can and your partner thinks you should buy the small trash can, you either want to convince them or be convinced by them. And you can't, you're not comfortable with this idea that, hey, <laughs> There's no one trash can and it's more or less whatever you happen to be feeling at the moment. That's, that's not a satisfactory equilibrium, I think, for someone with a philosophical disposition. No, I think you're right, actually, because, you know, saying those examples, the trash can may not be the one, but I think that's true of me, even though I've told you that I embrace this pluralism and I accept at the front line, as it were, I often do find myself thinking there is a correct way to stack the dishes <laughs> or a correct way to put things away in, in the cupboard. And of course, I know that's ridiculous on reflection, but I think if you're, you know, I think part of the philosophical impulse, I think, is to try and tidy things up as much as you can intellectually. And the belief that you being as rational as possible, and therefore you should be looking for the most rational way. And therefore, when, when you come to the conclusion that something is the most sensible, rational way of doing things, it kind of has a force because you thought about it and there, you, you believe there are reasons for it. And if there aren't reasons for it, you, you're worried about that and you want to find out if there are reasons for it. So if someone tells you, no, that's not the way to stack the dishes, you want to know why not rather than just say, okay. So I think you're right. And this is why, you know, I don't know if you're a fan of the Good Place TV series and there's a kind of running joke there where people end up saying that's why everybody hates moral philosophers. I think perhaps this is a reason why Everybody hates philosophers full stop, or if, if they don't hate them, they, they find them somewhat testing at times. Well, so you mentioned that kind of science is, is held up as sort of the ideal form of inquiry in some ways. And, and I think that's shared by quite a few people, but first of all, it's not as simple as that where science itself, its methods are, there's still quite a bit of 
disagreement among scientists. The bigger point is that if that's true, science really is relatively narrow in terms of the types of questions that, that it can answer. And if you stick to sort of A.J. Ayer's notion, most of the things that we're thinking about on, in our day-to-day -day is just nonsense, right? It's not something that reasonable people can even talk about, you know, and make any kind of sense of to some degree. So do we worship science at our at our peril, or is there really a whole lot more continuity across science and moral thinking and the humanities and so forth? Well, I think both things are true. I think we worship science at our peril for the reasons you've kind of outlined, which is that, as you say, it's actually qu quite narrow. And there's often, I think, a lack of modesty, there's sometimes a lack of modesty in scientists about that. And people are often persuaded by that. Having written a book on free will, you, you read people saying science has shown we have no free will, as though that is something science could do. Actually, no, it can't do that because the question, the key question is, is of what free will is. That's a conceptual question rather than simply a factual one. If you have, there are certain conceptions of free will, which science could show to be false. That's true. If you believe that free will requires the ability to defy the laws of nature and to initiate causal sequences which have no physical causes whatsoever. Science would show that wasn't possible. But the debate is much, much, much more nuanced than that. And in terms of morality, science can tell us very little. I'm going to backtrack a bit on that in a minute. So for example, you know, you know Sam Harris's Moral Landscape was a very influential book in which he, he tried to argue. And he seemed to be believed, despite the fact many, many people arguing what it was he got wrong. He didn't seem to accept the objections at all. And actually, quite famously, he, he offered a prize of money to anyone could show what was wrong with his argument <laughs> and gave it to someone who came closest but didn't quite succeed in view. And the point there was it seems an obviously flawed project because in order to get off the ground, you have to accept something about what is of value in the world. And, and science can't tell you what's of value. Now, Harris seemed to think that we could agree with what was of value in the world because it was unobjectionable. And he has this argument about the greatest pain, you know, and without going into details, I don't, I don't think that worked. But anyway, that's just one example. But then the other point you said was, and you're part of your, is it the case we should worship science too much? Or are, is it continuous with other things like ethics? It is continuous. And there is overlap. And I think the continuities are that we want to, with even in domains of ethics and so forth, we want to have views which are as consistent with the facts as possible. And the facts do inform our thinking. For example, there are certain forms of racism, which used to be called sort of scientific racism, the idea that you could justify a different treatment of human beings on the basis that race, which is a contentious and probably bogus term anyway, had different sort of inherent capacities, intellectual, physical, whatever it might be. Now, that was a scientific claim. Now, it's worth pointing out that even if that claim were true, it wouldn't follow that that automatically meant you could treat people differently because it's a moral claim. You know, the, the grounds under which you treat people morally differently have to be argued for morally. They're, they're not scientific. But it turns out that simply isn't true anyway. So there's, there's, a, there's certain factual matters which make certain kinds of racism untenable. Similarly, certain forms of misogyny, or for misogyny, I guess, is by definition an unjust discrimination, but certain forms of certain ways of treating men and women differently also become untenable because of the facts. I think we're also seeing the facts being important around things like animal welfare, the way we treat animals, because 
certain ways in which animals were treated were based on assumptions about what they could feel or sense, which were simply false. So, you know, that, so that's why you have these continuities. Also, for just simply a way of understanding what morality is, I'm a big fan of Patricia Churchland. Now, Patricia Churchland tends to get a bad rap amongst some philosophers because she has a reputation as someone who is basically denying consciousness and reducing everything to the brain. It, it's really interesting. I've never seen a, a, a clearer example of where someone's reputation, even the way they are presented sometimes in textbooks, is so out of kilter with the reality of what happens when you actually read her. Churchland writes a lot about what she might call the neural, neural platform of ethics, right? What's going on in the brain? What's going on in our neurology? The way in which you've evolved, which has made moral thinking possible. And this is very interesting. And I think it also helps us to think about what morality is and how we should do things. But it doesn't tell us what morality is. It doesn't tell us what the right thing to do is. And Churchill never says it does. So there's, there is continuity, but there are also just these really, really fundamental differences between what is a, a straightforward scientific claim as a broader claim about you know, how we should live or a question about something like free will, because free will is not a, a, a scientific concept, frankly, and, and neither is ethics. Most educated people are interested in the question of how to live. And most educated people, I think, now are increasingly curious about things like evolutionary psychology and, and neuroscience and, and so forth. And I think that people believe that those disciplines can inform the question of how to live. Where I think they go wrong is that they think that they can back out normative principles from, from those things. And I think Hume warned us against that over 200 years ago, but it seems to be a, a very, very common sort of philosophical error that people make quite often. Hume said that in order to figure out what we should do, we do need to understand how we think and, and how we, we operate. What's the difference between having these fields inform the question of how we live and the mistakes that people make where they think that the answer to those questions can be derived from empirical claims about us as humans? You should proceed by example. I mean, Hume's very interesting because superficially, you might think that at various uh, two points he, he contradicts himself. Just to unpack a bit about your summary, which is accurate. Hume said on the one hand, famously, that the summary position is that you can never get an ought from an is. So there's a very famous passage where he says that when people are talking about morality, what he finds is they start saying, this is, this is, this is, this is. And then suddenly they start saying, this should, this ought. And he says there's this slide from is to ought, which is imperceptible, but it's unjustifiable. So there's a formal way of putting this, which is in a logical argument. If you're in a logical argument, you can only get in your conclusion what's in the premises. If your premises are statements about the way things are, you can't generate a conclusion about what the way they ought to be. So he made that really strong logical point. I think it's an absolutely watertight point. People have debated this so-called is or gaps for forever since. And there are people who claim the is or gap can be bridged, but I don't think anyone denies that that logical point is true. If all you start with is, is, is you can't get to an ought as a matter of logic. Now, the other thing he says is the, the fundamental basis of morality isn't reason, it's moral sympathy, compassion, you know, fellow feeling, whatever you want to call it. So the basis of morality is not something that can be established by any kind of logical principle, partly because he's already argued you can't get oughts from is, is you can't get should statements from factual statements. 
So the basis of morality is a, a kind of fellow feeling. So what, why be good at all? Because we recognize in others the value of their own experience. We recognize it's good to be happy for at least if, if it's for the right reasons, we realize it's bad to be in pain unnecessarily and so forth. That's the basis of morality. Now, what appears to be the contradiction to people is that they, they're saying, well, hang on, Hume is saying that you can't go from facts about nature, if you like, to facts about the way things ought to be. And then he's saying morality is based in nothing more than a natural impulse. Isn't that, isn't that a contradiction? It's not a contradiction because Hume is basically biting the bullet of saying that you cannot ground morality in a rational argument. The basis of morality is simply buying into the idea that yes, it's true, the feelings of others matter, and that because they matter, that gives us a reason to take them into account, that their well-being matters. That is not something you establish by facts. You establish it by sympathy. And so therefore, if someone doesn't want to be moral, if someone says, I don't want to live an ethical life, that's not something you can argue them out of with logic. You can only kind of try to persuade them to embrace the view that this is not the right way to live. And then I think if you do buy into that, if you do accept the fact that we are reasons to be moral, are, they are reasons, they're just not logical reasons, they're emotional and compassionate reasons. If you think those are good reasons, then facts continue to inform your moral thinking all the time because facts will tell you all sorts of things about what it is that leads people to live good and satisfying lives, what leads them to suffer, the kinds of actions which, which cause suffering and distress, the kind of actions which, which bring about consequences. If you pay no attention to the facts, you'd have no idea of these things. You just go around responding on your gut instincts, perhaps creating unintentional harms or perhaps also acting on your worst impulses without checking them. So, so the reason gets in there as, as again, Hume puts it in famously hyperbolic terms. He says, reason is not only to be the slave of the passions. Now, I think that's an unfortunate phrase because it suggests the wrong things, but what it really means is the slave of the passions in the sense that the ultimate governing principle of morality is compassion, fellow feeling, moral sympathy, whatever it might be. And from then on, what reason is helping us to do is to exercise that capacity as, as best we can. But that's not saying that normative arguments can't be rational, right? It's not saying that since normativity is rooted in the, the passions that, hey, if, if we disagree on, on normative matters, that we just have to accept that disagreement. You can still have presumably persuasion and that persuasion doesn't depend entirely on empirical resolution of empirical disputes. It's just that the nature of the argument has to be I think, somewhat different, right? I think, I think you're right. I mean, I think the point is that what it can't be is purely rational. I think that's the point. If by purely rational, we mean we're not allowed to bring into this argument anything other than empirical facts and um, logical deductions. But the, I don't think that's a very, very limited view of what it means to be rational. The view I defend in The Edge of Reason, that rationality is essential. Reason, if you like, is a reason-giving enterprise. We engage our reason when we give reasons. And there are certain um, conditions on that because not just any old reasons will do. So, and I go through them in the book. So, you know, these reasons have to be accessible to others, open to others, comprehensible, 
and so forth. When we do that, we're engaging in reasoning and we're exercising our, our rationality. So absolutely rationality comes into it. It's just, you know, so the only qualification here is let's not think of it as pure rationality, something which in principle could be done with no reference at all to feelings, emotions, uh, values that we have as human beings in a social world, rather than people observing as for, for God's eye view. I think you make the argument that objective versus subjective, there's not a super clear line between those, but rather there's a bit of a spectrum to some degree, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's completely just borrowed lock, stock and barrel from Thomas Nagel. And when you do philosophy, there are always like a, I think a handful of books, which you sort of like, you read something and you think this person's got it and you go away and you use that kind of forever. Nagel's view from nowhere, I think, gets this completely. And so his point is this, that yes, we tend to think again, going back to what we were saying earlier, really, we like to think things form nice binary pairs. Again, if I have a general kind of principle, it'd be that uh, I would wager that almost always, but let's not say always, whenever you see what seems to be a binary pair, what you're really seeing are two, two ends of a spectrum. And that's the way Nagel puts it. So his book was called The View from Nowhere, a deliberately paradoxical title. There can be no view from nowhere, right? But this is how we kind of view objectivity. You know, that to be objective, you have to kind of transcend all viewpoints that means having no viewpoint that's possible so so i mean objectivity is a, is a myth well no the idea is that let's start the other end of the spectrum let's start with the most subjective way of seeing the world the most subjective way of seeing the world is purely through your own eyes your own sort of words with reference to, to nothing else you, your view becomes more objective more objective the more you can sort of see the world in ways that can be shared with first of all other people and perhaps ultimately with creatures that maybe have very different perceptual apparatus to us and so forth. So mathematics is highly objective because nothing about mathematics assumes the sort of human sense organs, perceptions, whatever it might be. Science is highly objective because it transcends culture, language, upbringing, time. We come up with rules of nature which work anywhere, irrespective of your background, your other kind of positions. So you have this sort of increase in objectivity, but it, you know, uh, to use, to sort of borrow the mathematical term and possibly get it wrong, you know, you get, you can get closer and closer to absolute objectivity without limit in the sense you can never get to pure objectivity. That can't happen. So we strive for greater objectivity and that makes perfect sense. And that's a lot of the way we make progress. It seems that educated people, at least in my circles, are a little bit afraid of, of making kind of explicit moral arguments, but much more comfortable, you know, making scientific arguments. I guess they, they feel like the foundations on which the moral arguments are made are, are somewhat suspect. In both the UK and the US, we've heard, follow the science, right? That's going to dictate what we should do, how we should live and how we should organize society and which policies are right or wrong. It's follow the science as if some empirical claim or empirical evidence would necessarily result in some specific course of policy actions. It presupposes that we, we all have consensus around the normative implications. And then if, if there are disagreements in what policies we advocate, we act as if they're, you know, disagreements about empirical evidence, when in fact the, the empirical evidence is actually 
the thing on which there's less room for, for disagreement. Or if you think about something like, like abortion, right? I mean, yes, people say pro-life or pro-choice, but, you know, oftentimes people want to make this into an argument about where heartbeats start and, and so forth. But I think even if we could agree on that, it wouldn't resolve any of these disputes because the disputes are based on more fundamental normative principles. Do people just suspect that moral arguments inherently are, it's all nonsense and it's all subjective? Is that, is that why people are, are reluctant to enter that arena consciously and they need to bury their normative claims, you know, somehow and they're going to hide the ball? I think actually people are just very, very confused about this, actually, because this reluctance, as you put it, to make moral arguments and make moral judgments, I think you do see that a lot. You know, some people recoil in horror when you suggest that you might say something is morally wrong. It's like, who are you to judge? How dare we judge other people? We can't go there. On other occasions, people are completely, totally very strong about expressing their, their moral views. If you think about this sort of outrage you get when people are found out to have made a racist slur or, or when someone has been found guilty of, of sexual harassment or rape, quite rightly, people are have no problem at all in expressing their moral indignation and outrage in that. So I think it's, it's, it's peculiarly selective. The way people say, well, you know, I don't want to be judgmental. You shouldn't judge people for their moral values and the way in which they leap in and get all over someone who they think's done something wrong. So I think that's just inconsistency. In, you're also right, though, that I think people like to, whenever possible, present their views as not being based in any kind of, as you say, normative judgment, moral judgment, which is not completely linkable with the facts. They like to present their views as simply being fact-based. And so, as you say, the abortion issue is an interesting that point of view. I mean, abortion is a very good example where the facts are totally but highly relevant to the morality, but they don't determine it. So, you know, I don't think you can think about the morality of abortion without thinking about what the status of those first early yeah, cells are and the development of the fetus and so forth. These are highly, highly relevant facts, but they don't settle the issue completely. Because clearly for some people, you know, the, the, the heartbeat issue, it, it sounds like it's just a fact, but it's, it's actually not necessarily a, a, a morally, we have to ask, why is that a morally relevant fact? Why, why is the first heartbeat a morally relevant point in, in the development? But people will try to do that. In other cases, I don't know, I think that people perhaps like to assume that certain things are just beyond question, which, which aren't, <laughs> I guess, and are unwilling to sort of uncomfortable with the idea that making a moral argument requires articulating a justification, which is neither just completely self-evident nor something that can be established purely by facts. I think we see this as also the debate about trans rights as well, a very difficult debate, real difficulty conducting that. And again, I think there are some people attempted to try and resolve it by finding, as it were, the, the, the killer fact. So there's a certain there's a certain line of argument, for example, which claims that essentially the, the categories of biological sex are just socially constructed. There is no biological dimorphism in human beings, male and female, at any kind of fundamental sexual level or biological level. And that therefore, the only distinctions we've got are gender identity. And if that's the case, then we have no grounds to question someone's gender identity on the basis of their biology 
and the argument is is just simple and straightforward. And I think that's an implausible way to, to argue. There, there are other more, there are other better ways to argue for the same conclusion. So I'm not saying that shows the conclusion is wrong, but that way of getting there doesn't work. And I think it shows the attraction of wanting to think that there can be just that, say, killer fact, that straightforward fact, which will settle everything for us. Yeah, but I think it, in, in many cases, it's disingenuous in the sense that if the moral commitment is made first and then the facts are sought in order to support it. For instance, if you believe in, in gay rights, does it really matter whether it's biological or socially determined? It kind of depends if, if people are more likely to support it, you know, if it's so, socially determined, then I think that's the fact you're going to gravitate towards and, and emphasize. And, and if if people, if you think that you can garner more support, like you're not going to change your opinion on the issue. If the science turns out to be different, you're not going to follow that argument the way it would lead. I think we'd start with our moral commitments and then go look for facts to, to support it to some degree. Well, that often does happen, which of course goes back to the reason why I think people are often very skeptical about reason, because they see that in practice, that's often how we use it. We have our commitments, we then go looking for the reasons, we then articulate them. And, and so it's all got a kind of veneer and the event justification. So I think that's right. And we do do that a lot, but the fact that we do do it a lot doesn't mean that we should. And it doesn't mean that's the only way we can use our reason. We can find examples of people who have been able to resist that. And I think perhaps all of us have at some in our lives realized that we set out wanting some, to believe something was true initially perhaps seeking the evidence that there was in the arguments, but finding that the weight of evidence and argument simply went against us and we had to, we had to go another way on it. That does happen. So, you know, we're not powerless against this. The fact that there's a very natural and very common impulse to start with a commitment and then look for the reasons and, and ignore everything else doesn't mean that that inevitably happens. And this is why, you know, being rational is, is a challenge. It's a constant challenge. We are constantly working against a lot of impulses to take shortcuts, to find what is pleasing to us, what we already agree with. So it's hard work. Just I'm, I'm, I'm working on a book, which won't be out until next year now on basically philosophical reasoning. And the approach I, I take in that book is it's often called sort of virtue epistemology. It's got a name, got a name now. <laughs> Actually, it's interesting. I only discovered the name after I realized I was a virtue epistemologist. The idea here is that you pick up a critical thinking book and it's full of things like here are the logical fallacies. These are the principles of deduction. It makes it look like it's a kind of a method, it, like a you just follow the steps A, B, C, and D, and you get to the right answer. And I, th I think increasingly people are realizing that actually at least as important as that are the kind of attitudes we bring to our reasoning. So Bernard Williams, the, the great Bernard Williams, his last book was called Truth and Truthfulness. And he talked there about two great virtues of truth, sincerity and accuracy. And the idea here was that set aside all your principles of critical thinking, which are, are useful and important. I'm not saying don't think about those, but to think you've got to bring to your thinking First of all, a demand of accuracy. You've got to get things right factually. You've got to explain things the way they are accurately. If you're criticizing someone's argument, you've got to present their argument accurately. And then you have to have a sincerity about your pursuit. You've got to genuinely be wanting to get to the bottom of it and not simply wanting to uh, advance your own view, protect your own interests. 
And, and these two virtues of sincerity and accuracy are, I think, central to good thinking. And it's an effort to maintain those things. That speaks to how we need to educate people. Certainly, we offer classes in business school where I teach on critical thinking, on fallacies, and, and so forth. But we're not generally in the, in the business of, of teaching virtues. So we presuppose that people begin with those virtues. And, and if they don't, it's not clear how we're supposed to go about inculcating those virtues. That would seem to be an explicitly normative enterprise, and we're, we're a little bit less comfortable with that. Can we teach that virtue? I think Bacon actually was mentioned this concept, right, of the, the virtue of the scientific attitude. How would we inculcate that in people? I don't think it's perhaps as difficult as it might seem. I mean, you're right. If someone has no fundamental motivation to do this at all, then you're not going to be able to persuade them. But that's the same with any kind of uh, moral or ethical principle. In fact, bottom, there isn't a, that impulse. If people just don't care about anything other than their, their self-interest, then you, you can still reason to a certain extent. You can try and sort of give them examples of different people's lives and sort of ask them, do you really think, do you really think the best life for you is going to be this one of pure self-interest? You can try and show them the limitations of that. I think that's another thing as well, which we don't pay enough attention to. I mean, philosophy, it's showing, I think a lot of good reasoning is about showing more clearly the way things are so people can see what they really mean. And this, the purely egotistical life, part of the way to argue about against that is to show it for what it really is and to show its ultimate unsatisfactoriness to most people. So you can do that for sure. I mean, in other cases, though, I think that perhaps, perhaps we underestimate, I think most people do want to understand things as they really are. They do want to know the truth. And that therefore, you've got something to work on there. So all you need to do is to sort of show them how, if that's what they really want, then they need to work on more than their, their logical chops, as it were, and need also to make sure at, they bring the right attitudes to, to what they're doing. Because in a lot of cases, it isn't that people either have or don't have these desires for truth and sincerity and accuracy. It's not about whether they have them or not. It's whether or not they, they keep them salient. It's whether or not they're, they're aware of them, whether or not they're bringing them to the table, whether they're checking whether or not these things have been turned on or off, wherever it might be. It's a lot of it is about sort of awareness raising, if you like, I think. Well, you mentioned that most major philosophical moves occur as a result of observations not arguments. And so I guess that would be in support of what you're advocating, which is storytelling, perhaps, or maybe even literature might be more helpful in inspiring this set of virtues than arguments. Arguing somebody into a virtue is going to be pretty difficult, whereas showing them examples of people that inhabit this virtue. And I guess this also brings us to the stories of philosophers, right? So you've written a biography of Hume, which I really enjoyed. And Hume, I mean, how can you not like Hume? He is someone that you just wish that there was a Hume. Maybe you're the modern Hume, but, you know, you, you wish there were like Humes around who you could invite over to dinner and chat with and have in, in your salon and so forth. But what benefit is there in studying the person rather than just studying the the ideas that the person has, has written down. Where is the benefit there? I mean, a lot of times the artists will say, don't study my life, study my work. Yeah, I think it depends. I mean, first of all, what you're saying about how the importance of story and narrative and, and literature in doing philosophy, I think that's true. I think that is important. I think in moral philosophy in particular, actually, I think that 
there are works of fiction which I think tell us, show us as much about morality as, as arguments do. And I wrote, a, I wrote a chapter for a book on film and philosophy about how I think the Coen brothers do this in their films. I think they are actually really good at showing what is the difference between the characters there who behave well and behave badly. They have a subcategory of like psychopath. They're set aside, right? Take aside the psychopaths. You have ordinary people, some of whom allow themselves by very natural and very human weaknesses to go step by a small step to something awful. And so they're, they're showing you here that really it's not a question of having the right. And the people who are good aren't, it's, it's not like the good people have got a great theory. They say, oh, yeah, I read Kant and that's why I'm doing the right thing. They just have this sort of like resistance to the, the fundamental virtues that hold being chipped away at. And I think that's a really important moral insight. And I think we learn a lot about morality from that. So that's one thing. Secondly, I couldn't help, you know, when you did mention how great it has something like Hume, I do wonder whether we have to address the fact that for all his wonderfulness, he did have some racist views, right, which have become quite controversial in, in recent times. They've led some people to think that, you know, his, his statue should be pulled down and so forth. Maybe or maybe not, we'll come back to that. I mean, for me, the, the key point here is, I think this is just a really useful reminder that no one idolised as, as perfect. Everyone has flaws, particularly people from the past, I think, because they're past times, there are some very awful things that are very main, mainstream. If you're going to cancel Hume for his racism, I think you probably have to cancel pretty much every philosopher up until maybe, you know, very recently for their misogyny, frankly. I mean, you know, I think the very poor attitudes towards women in, in most male thinkers until very, very recently. But the final sort of point was why, what's the value of fo focusing on someone's life, right? Why do the life? It, it, it isn't always perhaps useful or important. I thought in the case of Hume, it was. I mean, Hume had this very interesting life in which he, he wrote histories and he wrote essays and he wrote his philosophy. So one thing that you don't get when you read about Hume in a standard philosophical textbook is the richness of this. What people focus on are like half a dozen canonical philosophical texts and they ignore all the rest. So I think actually that's ignoring important things about his, his thought. But I also think as a kind of, you're thinking about the question of how to live, Hume didn't really address that issue head on, actually. I think in his works, you've got lots of things about that, but he didn't really put it all together. And in a way, seeing his life and how he lived his life, which is, of course, a life which reflected a lot of his views and arguments, I think is a way of kind of bringing out that aspect of his thought, making it kind of concrete with a concrete example, with a particular example. Also, it simply makes it easier and more enjoyable to read, which is no bad thing. In, in an academic paper, even in an academic paper, you want it to be as comprehensible as possible. I mean, no one should ever set out to make what they write anything other than as clear as possible. But in an academic paper, you don't typically help out the reader uh, other than by simply being clear as possible. But if you're writing for a non-academic audience, then if you can bring in some, some narrative, some character, as long as they're not distracting and don't take it away, I think they can, they can help people in. It makes it more easier for them to read and ultimately more easily. I don't want to make it sound like I'm making it sound like it's that spoonful of sugar kind of thing. It helps the medicine go down. I don't think it's just that for the reason I said before, which is actually seeing how 
Hume lived, I think, is a good way of kind of bringing out a lot of what he thought too. You mentioned that Hume spent a big chunk of his life writing history. And so a philosophical account of his life ends fairly early on in his life, as if everything that happened afterwards was just sort of the, the cherry on top. How important is it to understand why he was writing history? I think he had a view of history as, as being something that could really inform people about how to live. But what is the role of history for Hume? It's very hard to say that people should read Hume's histories because I think they have been superseded in lots of ways. But it is interesting, it is important to, to recognize why he wrote them and why it was part of his project. So, as you said earlier, really, people at that time were more what we call generalists. The, the, the divisions between the disciplines weren't the same. Hume's subject matter was essentially human nature. I think that's really what he was concerned in, human nature and how, how best to live. And he was broadly empirical. He wanted to sort of base his views on what we observe to be true of human nature. And for him, you know, history was the great, as it were, almost is what you have in place of experiments. You can't do experiments on human nature. You can do very limited ones in laboratories, but I think we're learning these experiments are not very, very good. In other words, if you put people in a room and you get them to fill in a questionnaire, and all at the same time playing music in the background, you can get striking results for an academic paper about how you can nudge people, but how much that actually tells us about how they work in the outside world is very, very dubious. So there's that whole question of how much this so-called rigorous social psychology experiments really are rigorous. But history provides us with kind of, if you like, real life experiments, you know, in different times and different places, people have lived differently under different rules, under different conditions. And that enables you to have a look about, you know, what is malleable, what is constant and so forth in human nature. So for him, this, this was a big empirical investigation into human nature, I think. That's the way he, he saw it. And he explicitly said was that effect at some point. So... Yeah, and I, and I think it, it kind of, I mean, history is, is one thing, but I do think, generally speaking, it isn't helpful to do philosophy in a too isolated a way. I think it's always helpful to bring in other disciplines, other angles, uh, whenever they're relevant, and often, often they are. But I think one of the unfortunate aspects of academic specialisation is it's kind of discouraged that. You know, I often do say I think this, the saddest kind of academic divorce in history was between philosophy and psychology. It goes back to the late 19th century, basically, when the first psychological laboratory was separated off from a philosophy department somewhere in Germany. And I think that philosophy and psychology miss each other, actually. No one will accuse you of doing philosophy in isolated fashion, Julian. I think you are upholding the tradition of, of Hume for the 21st century. Great books, Edge of Reason. I, I really can't mention them all. <laughs> Great guide, really wonderful. <laughs> Hume, the toolkit, The Pig Wants to Be Eaten. I still love that one. And of course, How the World Thinks. Thank you so much, Julian, for joining me. Yeah, thanks, Greg. Really interesting conversation. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.